0: Our gracious heavenly Father, you are indeed the Rock of Ages. You are our foundation. You are sure ground, and you are in the midst of a unstable and um, unstable society around us. And so many things that are taking place. We can come to you, knowing that you are the one who never changes, and your word never changes. Help us, right now, Lord, to remove distractions from our minds or from our hearts. That we would be able to reflect upon your word, and not only reflect upon it, but also apply it as we meditate upon these truths. We know that when we open your word, the Bible, we are hearing from you. Help us to receive the word implanted which is able to save our souls and to edify our souls. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll turn to Titus chapter 1, Titus chapter 1, verses 10 through 16. I read the text earlier for us. It's good to be back with you, and um, I heard that last week, Pastor Jay Underwood really brought it, amen? Um, on our way back from our anniversary uh, getaway, my wife and I listened to the whole sermon and we're just so encouraged by him and uh, the message that he brought to you, and I pray that you have taken some time to really think about that message and apply it to your hearts and lives, and uh, also thank you so much for your little notes and your texts, and uh, different um, ways that you expressed how you were praying for us for our anniversary weekend. We uh, celebrated our 18th wedding anniversary, and uh, we're just so thankful to spend time with my wife. She definitely is my favorite person, I'll tell you that right now. No offense against any of you guys, but I'd rather be with her any day, okay? But I still love you, okay? I still love you too. Um it was a refreshing time of getting away and uh, we spent a few days in one particular location about an hour away from here and then the last day we drove in the morning to uh, San Luis Obispo uh, just a beautiful little town we don't make it there as often as we'd like to make it but uh, we made it first and foremost for uh, to breakfast to a place called the apple farm how many of you have ever been to the apple farm you need to go to the apple farm if you've never been to the apple farm the breakfasts rock there right honey it was an amazing breakfast. So after that, we um, uh, just uh, took an opportunity to walk around San Luis Obispo, drive around a little bit, and then go into the uh, area where there's uh, downtown San Luis Obispo, where there's like all these little shops. And uh, I got to tell you, I mean, it's not the I'm not it's not the most it's not my favorite thing to walk around, and um, all these little shops. I'm sure some of you men can say amen to that, right? But what makes a difference to me is that uh, is the person that I'm with. So it's not even about the shops themselves. It's about the fact that I'm with my beloved, right? And so it was a good time to be with her doing that. And and uh, there was one shop in particular um, that we went in, and uh were all kinds of different uh, products in in this one shop. So my wife went to an area, and she was looking at different things there. And I noticed uh, on the other side of the shop uh, a couple of of shelves. Um, And shockingly, in this uh, little store, um, there was this shelf with books and so being the book lover that I am, you know, I made my way over there thinking oh, all right and there was even a chair uh, close to the uh, where the books were. Uh, I take it that they probably set that up for husbands, you know. Uh, who get weak around the knees as they, as the wives continue to shop and to look at things. So I went over there, and and I was um, uh, thinking, um, you know, maybe I can read a little bit as my wife continues to look around at things. And um, uh, as I started to look through some of the books on the shelf, there were some New Age uh, material. There was some Transcendental Meditation types of books. There was some Hindu religion and world religion types of books. There was some Philosophy and Logic uh, materials there and yes they even had a couple of Bibles uh there on top of all this stuff or in the midst of all this stuff. Not very good translations, but the Bibles were there as well. And even a great source that maybe some of you know about, um The Valley of Vision. Um the uh just a Puritan classic with some great Puritan poems uh, just based upon the word of God and reflection type of a material. So they even had that there as well. And then next to this shelf with all of these different kinds of books were, was this other shop with beautiful quilts um and you you, you know quilts just uh, blankets made up of different kinds of pieces of material uh, that vary and stuff and and it struck me at that moment how ironic how ironic that here you have on one shelf um a literal quilts, actual quilts made of cloth and next to it you actually have a shelf with a quilt of theology made up of all kinds of different books um, uh, you know, these, these, uh, this, these people in the store were trying to sell these books, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. If you dabble with this, you dabble with that, right? And it struck me at that moment, you know, this is the way our society is. Some people have developed in our society a quilt of theology. And many people, if you were to visit their homes, they would have books from many different kinds of topics and themes without no sense of discernment for what they're bringing in and what they're reading into. And I would say, in having interacted with many Christians over the years, that even some Christians um, can dabble into different things and, and adopt their own quilt of theology, if you will. Um, they like to read up on certain books. They like to maybe watch television, and maybe they derive some things even from television or some basic talk show, uh, talk shows, favorite talk shows, and they adopt some of the thinking there, or maybe social media, and they create their own quilt of theology. And many people think that they can function this way, and it won't affect your life, that it won't affect your conduct. And yet the Bible says otherwise. The Bible tells us that what you put in is what's going to come out. Sound doctrine leads to sound living. Corrupt doctrine leads to a corrupt conduct and behavior. Our minds are like sponges, aren't they? And what we take in... When you squeeze that sponge, whatever you put into that sponge and you squeeze that sponge is what's going to come out. And so these things have a way of, 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 a, of a developing our worldview, our outlook on life and our society around us. And this is why, beloved, doctrine is so, so important in the church. What we teach. And it's so important that not only do we teach doctrine, but we protect the doctrine of the church because the church is the pillar and the support of the truth. Guarding the truth is so, so important. I love a, a sticker that was left in my office here at Calvary Bible Church by one of the pastors here from a long time ago. And the sticker says this. I could see it under the glass on the desk. It says, guard the truth. Guard the truth. And it's a reminder every single day that I sit on that desk or when I walk out of that, that room that I need to be a pastor who is devoted to the truth, to guarding the truth because lives are at stake, right? Lives are at stake. And this issue of protecting the church and protecting the doctrine of the church really is part of the point here in our text in chapter 1, verses 10 through 16. We've seen that Paul wrote to Titus. And instructed Titus that he needs to establish the churches on the island of Crete. And at the top of that list was the need for him to, to appoint elders, leaders, who are qualified and godly men in chapter 1, verses 5 through 9, that they were to be above reproaches as to their character, above reproaches to their home life, and they were to be devoted and competent in the Word of God. And then on the heels of those uh, qualifications of, uh, of leadership, in chapter 1 verses 10 through 16, we see why these qualified godly elders are to be appointed. Paul says in chapter 1 verse 10, if you look there, he says, For, here's the reason why you need qualified godly leaders, for there are many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision why do we need christ-like shepherds who are able to defend the word of god it is because of the infiltration of false teachers and false teaching in the church and so paul addresses the need to protect the church from false teaching and false doctrine in chapter 1 verses 10 through 16 and as we look at this crucial passage beloved i want to charge us to give heed to three serious exhortations in these verses That we might guard the truth and protect ourselves and protect the church from false teaching. Three serious exhortations here to give heed to for us that we might protect the church from false teaching. Because you know what? A little leaven leavens the whole lump, right? And so it's important that we give heed to these exhortations here that we might exalt Christ as we continue to be a pillar and support of the truth as A church. Okay, the first exhortation that we see here that I want you to make note of is this. Be expecting opposition. Be expecting opposition. We see this in verse 10. We must not be naive to think that opposition won't come. And so Paul reminds Titus of this impending danger that's already a reality on the island of Crete. In verse 10 he says, For, this is the reason why you need qualified godly leaders, Titus, For there are many rebellious men present tense it's already a reality titus is seeing this infiltration already on the uh, in some of these churches this danger is ever there and he doesn't say there's the possibility there might be he says it's a reality and it's not just one or a few he says there are many rebellious men many are coming in amongst you it shouldn't have shocked titus Jesus in Matthew chapter twenty four said that many false teachers or false prophets would arise. Would arise. Jesus said, "My kingdom is not of this world. Implication: There are those who oppose me in this world because the ruler of this world is, is still here, and the final death blow hasn't been given to the, our our opposer, our opposition, our enemy." Jesus says, in this world you will have trouble. And we know that part of that trouble is the opposition that comes to us because we, we, we share and we live the truth. Many of the biblical authors combat issues in their letters regarding false teachers and false teaching. For example, in Galatia, Paul was, was a, a refuting a group called the Judaizers we're going to talk about it in a little bit that's the same group that Paul refers to in Philippians chapter 3 verses 1 and 2 as the false circumcision the false circumcision you remember even in the early church in Acts chapter 8 when the apostles were doing miracles and the Spirit of God was was coming upon those who would trust in Jesus? There was this guy named Simon in Acts chapter 8, a false teacher who wanted the power to, to be able to lay hands on people and bestow the Holy Spirit upon people. And so he asked the apostles, you give me that power too that I too may be able to do the works of God. And Peter rebukes him to his face, right? And tells him, your heart is not right. Repent of this wickedness. Already in the early church, there were false teachers. The point, beloved, is is that we need to expect opposition. The early church experienced it. Jesus said that it would come, and we're seeing it in our own day and age today, aren't we? Maybe in your neighborhoods, maybe in your job settings, maybe within your own family there's opposition, and it's not always opposition in terms of outright rebellion or or maybe uh, intense, but sometimes opposition in the sense of indifference because of the fact that you make a stand for the gospel even within your own family. We experience opposition. And so Paul tells Titus there are many rebellious men. And then he pulls back the curtain in verse 10 and he begins to unmask their identity. Notice, he calls them in verse 10 empty talkers and deceivers. What are these guys like? They're empty talkers, worthless, vain talkers is the idea. They say a lot of good things, even impressive things, but their words are like hot air. They're vain, they're useless. They're unhelpful. They're deceivers in verse 10. They're literally mind deceivers. They, they fill your mind with misleading, deceitful teaching that pulls you away from the truth. Paul wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 13, that evil men, but evil men, Timothy, and imposters will proceed from bad to worst, deceiving and being deceived. That's how he describes what would happen in the last days. There are many of these, says Paul. And then he singles out some of them in verse 10. Notice, he says, especially those of the circumcision. He began, he's going to talk in verses 14 through 16 and kind of expose this this group within the, these false teachers. Uh, the, those are the circumcision. But here he introduces them. Now, you need to understand this as a, somewhat of background. In Paul's time... The circumcision referred here was also known as the false circumcision in Philippians chapter 3 verses 1 and 2 In first century the first century church it was a group called the Judaizers that Paul refutes in Galatians um, there and they were primarily comprised of Jewish legalists and these Jewish legalists had had difficulty the best way to put it is this way they had difficulty really harmonizing salvation by grace through faith in christ with their former jewish manner of life how are those two things compatible and these these jewish legalists essentially said we we need christ it's good that you have faith in jesus it is by faith in christ that you're saved that you're justified but we also need to be circumcised We also need to adhere to certain aspects of the Mosaic law, whether it be observing certain ceremonies or, or festivals or observing certain rituals of purification, washings of your body and so forth. And these things are necessary for you to become sanctified or to become more and more holy in addition to your faith in Jesus Christ. Paul says that this teaching was erroneous. Look at verse 11. They are teaching things they should not teach. They're contradicting the truth verse 14 notice there they are men who turn away from the truth at the end of verse 14 so what they're teaching is contrary to the truth why it was a works-based system beloved really at its heart an attack on the sufficiency of Jesus in our justification not only for our salvation but also an attack on on the sufficiency of Christ for our sanctification The process of becoming more conformed to the image of Christ. It was an attack on the gospel of grace. You see, the gospel of grace was being compromised. Jesus' person and his finished work was being undermined and and cheapened by this teaching. Because any teaching, beloved, which places focus on man's works as either the ground or means of finding or remaining accepted before God or in favor with God is to be condemned and rejected. It is an attack on the grace of Christ, which comes to us not on the basis of anything that we do. That be whether it's in justification or in sanctification. There's nothing that you can do to to keep in favor with God. It's all based upon the finished work of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Now, pay attention to this. The opposition that he describes already here in verse 10 was corrupt in character. He calls them rebellious men, empty talkers, and deceivers. But the reason for the corrupt character was the underlying belief system of these men. They were of the circumcision. And I've articulated for you what essentially they believed or they were trying to promote. And we'll unpack it more. And I think there's a lesson for us here. Again, sound doctrine leads to sound living. Because these individuals were promoting false doctrine, unhealthy doctrine, it was fleshing itself out in their conduct. They were rebellious men, empty talkers, and deceivers. Notice verse 15. They are to the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, he's describing them there, Nothing is pure, but both their mind and their conscience are defiled. They profess to know God. That means with their lips they profess to know God. But by their deeds they deny Him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. Sound doctrine leads to sound living, but corrupt doctrine leads to ungodly living. Don't forget that. In promoting this false teaching, it was showing itself in their own Conduct. Their conduct exposed their erroneous beliefs, their faulty theology. So to this young pastor, Paul says, essentially, Titus, expect opposition. It's ever before you. So that perhaps Titus doesn't need to be shocked or paralyzed or maybe the churches themselves. This is why they need devoted, competent elders who are able to defend the truth because of the reality of opposition, the certainty of opposition. And beloved, how hard it is for us many times to, to remember that, right? That there's always going to be opposition. Some of you are already experiencing that, as I said earlier, in various contexts. And even sometimes myself, whether as a, as a layman or as a pastor, I've forgotten, without even wanting to, about the fact that not everything that we teach and not everything that is preached will always be embraced um, uh, perfectly. There is a certainty called opposition that was, that's going to come because it's the Word of God and the truth of the Word of God. Certainly we can experience opposition because of sin, right? We're not talking about that. But, but when you're trying to to do those things which are good and profitable and according to the Word of God, there's going to be opposition. And sometimes even as an individual, I can forget that. And there was a, a note that was written to me some time ago by someone. It's one of the best notes that I've ever gotten. For various reasons and i'm kind of modifying it a little bit here to kind of highlight a couple of things that really struck me and impacted me but it says this pastor hernandez when you preach the word of god really preach without shrinking from the often painful truth it brings undoubtedly there are consequences a faithful man of god who preaches with boldness and humility is a sure target for the devil and you have doubtless felt his arrows on many occasions Discouragement, doubt, and hopelessness must weigh heavy on you, I'm sure, at times. I cannot fathom the pains often felt in this work, this ministry, but I also don't want to, I also want to offer sincere and humble thanks for your faithfulness to your calling. Thank you for your relentless preaching the words of our God to us each week. You are a tool in His hand. It is His power and grace that accomplishes all of this. That last part, has been a huge reminder for me that it's by the grace of God, right? Nothing in us. All by the grace of God. We're can't. we we're not adequate to do any of this work. Myself, yourself, to live this Christian life and make a stand for the truth. But it's all by the grace of God. But the other thing that really impacted me about this note is just a reminder, based upon the things that this person said, of the fact that, what did you expect? What did you expect? There's always going to be opposition to the truth. Always. But what do we hear? We hear the opposite, right? You must be doing something wrong if there is opposition. If there is pushback, you must be doing something wrong. In some cases, that may be the case. But not every in every case. This text tells us otherwise. That opposition is a reality. It is to be expected when you're preaching and teaching the truth. When you're pushing for those things that are right. Now it comes to us, this opposition comes to us subtly, doesn't it? Subtly in different forms and shapes and colors, if you will. It comes to us in the, within our families. It comes to us in our neighborhoods. It comes to us in our jobs, perhaps. The TV programs that we watch, you see opposition to the truth in those very things. Talk shows, the, the popular ones, in the radio, in the newspaper, in the movies that we watch. Uh, um, uh, brethren, in our culture, embedded in our culture, is opposition to the truth, you understand. Constantly. Our own kids experience that in secular educational contexts where the truth of God is constantly being refuted. And God, and, and essentially what they want is to say that God is silent about certain issues in our day, but he is not silent. So embedded in our culture is, is falsehood, the promotion of, and perversion of the truth, if you will, through in different venues. False teachers are on television promoting false ideas in theology, Right? All you got to do is just turn on the popular evangelical shows of today to hear some of these things. But it's subtle. It is not always out there explicit, right? J.C. Rowe writes about this, about the subtlety of false doctrine. He writes this, quote, False doctrine does not meet men face to face. It does not blow a trumpet before it and endeavor openly to turn us away from the truth as it is in Jesus. It does not come before men in, in broad day and summon them to surrender. It approaches us secretly, quietly, insidiously, plausibly, and in such a way as to disarm man's suspicion and throw him off his guard, end quote. It's just, he's describing our day and age, isn't he? Subtle tactics to promote the tru- to promote falsehood encounter the truth. And it's not always explicit heresy, right? It's not always explicit heresy. D. Martin Lowe Jones said that the, that the worst kind of error consists in small perversions of the truth. Because if you can just sow a little tear, eventually that becomes a full tear, right? A full on uh, uh, falsehood being promoted in the context of the church. So it always sometimes it just comes very, very subtly and in very small ways and might say to us, this is the reason why, beloved, you being in the word and, and renewing your mind by the word of God is so important. That's what Romans 12 chapters one verses one and two tell us that we need to be transformed by the renewing of our mind daily, right? So that we might be conformed to the image of Jesus as we appropriate the truth of the word of God to our lives. We need our, 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 our minds constantly corrected and renewed and reprogrammed, beloved, because we they become filthy and dirty with the stuff of this life, with world thinking and worldly philosophies and philosophical mountains and fortresses, if you will. So we need the truth of the Word of God in our hearts and minds. This is the reason why I might say as well, why discipleship in, the, in a Bible-teaching church is so important. Where people are investing their lives into one another. And listen, people are instruments where they're speaking the truth to one another and calling one another to obedience in the areas where we're struggling, where we're beginning to think wrongly and be deceived about what's going on in the world around us, people that are going to come alongside of us and in light of all that's taking place in our world, be able to say, hey, don't forget, brother or sister, that in the word of God, God is a God who is absolutely sovereign and who's in control of the big de- big things and the little details of our creation. And there is hope for us beyond this world, you see. Somebody reminded me of that this week. A, a truth bearer, if you will. Another believer, Because of the fact that there is constant opposition, we need other people in our lives, beloved. Discipleship is is part and parcel of what it means to follow Jesus. You can't live the life of of a believer in isolation. You cannot do it. You understand? That's what Satan wants. The most vulnerable Christians to wrong thinking, worldly philosophy and opposition, impacting them in a sinful, negative way are those who are isolated, who lean upon their own understanding and don't have others investing into them and they investing into the other people who are not involved in discipleship, life on life, gospel transforming relationships. So this is an encouragement for us by way of implication to be involved in the context of the church where people will call you back to the word of God and correct you out of love if need be. So don't be naive, but expect opposition. Expect opposition. Secondly, be engaging opposition. Be engaging opposition. Knowing the reality of this opposition in the form of false teaching Then that should drive us to action, to engage falsehood, to engage false teaching, beloved. How might we do this? Well, I think that the point that Paul makes here is that we need to confront false teaching definitively and decisively. Look at verse 11. He says that these rebellious men must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families. They must be silenced. Look at verse 13. He says, this testimony is true regarding the character of false te- the false teachers. For this reason, reprove them severely so that they may be sound in the faith. This is strong language here to silence in verse 11 means to figuratively to to put a bridle or muzzle on the mouth and thus to silence someone. When you silence someone, what do you do? They cannot express their views anymore and thus influence other people with their false teaching. Right. In this context silence them they don't have a right to freedom of speech in the church as it pertains to false teaching and promoting false teaching look at verse 13 reprove them severely literally that word there has that sense of to cut as one cuts with one blow of an axe to shut down to cut down to remove the influence of that type of teaching It's the same idea in chapter 1, verse 9, if you look there, where the elders are to reprove or to refute those who contradict, those who speak against the truth. Strong language, isn't it? Strong language when there's false teaching being promoted. Please notice, beloved, and take note that with regard to false teaching, those who try to bring destructive error into the church and promote it, we are not, 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 not called to be nice. We're not called to be nice. We're not called to spiritualize false teaching and error in the church that harms people and say, we just need to be gracious to them. Let's just be gracious. They're just wrestling with some things. No, if they know that it contradicts the truth of the Word of God, we must silence them. We must reprove them severely and remove their influence because it's going to harm people. It's going to harm people. He says, don't be nice. Reprove them severely, he says. Cut off their influence. As when cut, one cuts off a water line that is, that is uh, uh, producing filthy, dirty water, you don't want people to be drinking that water, right? So you cut that line off. Listen, there's no room for compromise in this area, Beloved. Oh, pastor, what about freedom of speech, you know, in our own country? I mean, shouldn't that impact the way that we interact in the church, even with regards to false teaching? Absolutely not. With regards to, to error in the church, there is no freedom of speech to continue to promote your ideas in the church. You must submit to what the Word of God says. Well, we Don't we want people to express their ideas and opinions? and and, to, and don't we want to be tolerant like the rest of our culture? No, we do not. We want people to submit to the lordship of a loving Christ who tells us in his word what is good for us if we obey it. That's what we desire. No room here to be nice according to the way that niceness is, is, is uh, uh, defined by our culture. There's no freedom of speech, beloved, in the sense that you have a right to contradict the truth in a deliberate fashion in the church. There is no freedom there. I mean, think about parenting. Parenting. How many of us don't, didn't teach our kids or are teaching our kids that it's, it isn't okay to talk back to mommy and daddy? That just isn't okay. Why? Because it reflects a heart that dishonors and disrespects their parents, right? They must not talk back to their parents. They must be respectful. How much more, if that's the case in parenting, how much more do you think that God is okay with you talking back or speaking against God's word when he calls you to obey in a particular area? Do you think God is going to put up with that? It's going to show forth in your life. So all influence must be cut off so that these false teachers and false teaching is not given life in the church. And please hear me here. There's wisdom that we need to apply to this. We're talking about false teaching and addressing false teachers in the church. Now remember that if you have a baby believer, somebody who just came to know the Lord, they're not going to have all their ducks in a row as far as their understanding of doctrine or theology, right? So we need to f- uh, manifest um, uh, gentleness and patience and open up the word of God and give them little bites to eat so that they might grow in their understanding of the truth of the word of God. You're not going to reprove them severely if they say something wrong because they don't understand. So what do we do? We come alongside of them. as someone came alongside of you when you were a baby believer and you didn't understand everything, right? so we walk with them and we help them grow in their understanding or perhaps we have sometimes people who come into our church and become members of our church over the years and they come from churches where they weren't taught the bible they were given stories and the bible wasn't even ever opened or the bible was open and then the guy went off for one hour and never even addressed the text and taught them the word of god listen those people also we need to exercise grace and patience you understand. And as you do that and as you teach them what the, what the truth of the Word of God says, you will see if they are being rebellious or if they're actually learning and then they want to grow in their understanding, right? Are they are they reacting to the Word and say, I don't care what the Word of God says, this is what I believe. Well, I know what you believe, but this is what I believe. Well, that's a rebellious spirit. But in most cases, people who are untaught, they just need to be shown what the Word of God says, and we need to manifest patience and grace and gentleness. Amen. But with regards to false teachers and wolves, you don't reason with a wolf, right? You just don't. You reprove them severely. You silence their influence because they are going to tear up the sheep. Notice, notice, why are we to engage the opposition definitively and decisively? Look at verse 11. These men must be silenced because... They are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach for the sake of sordid gain. These false teachers, he says, are upsetting, overturning, upsetting, harming whole families. There are lives at stake here, Titus. Shut them down because people are being hurt. People are being harmed. Whole families, households, a lot of believers and sometimes people don't know it, that they're being harmed or deceived. That's why shepherds must be, must be diligent and watchful and vigilant and must call the sheep to, to hear the shepherd's voice, Jesus Christ, and not the, sh- the voice of the wolf, you understand. Because they're upsetting whole families. Shut them down. Why is false teaching to be definitively dealt with? It's out of love for and concern for the flock, beloved. For the flock, I mean, think of your own home. Why do you turn off lights, lock doors at night, or ensure that that happens? Why do you lock windows, and why do you take all these precautions? I'll tell you why. Because you love your family, right? You want to protect your family, and love protects. Love protects. Any leader in the home knows that. Any leader knows that. You protect your family. You stand well before your home and you protect your family. How much more in the church, beloved? Under shepherds, under the chief shepherd must protect the sheep. And so we shut false teaching down because we love you and we want what is best for you, you understand. Love. Love. By contrast, false teachers note in verse 11 are motivated by something else. He says they do it for the sake of sordid gain. Sordid gain could be monetary gain. Social standing, desire for control, influence, power. These guys are not in it because they love the flock or they love Jesus. They're in it for what they what they get for themselves. Selfish gain, selfish ambition. And they don't always lead people astray by explicitly telling them, give me your money. They don't always do it explicitly that way. They promise you something that you want, that you know in your human condition is a felt need. You want blessing. You want healing. You want financial prosperity. You want trouble-free life, right? They say, God certainly is only a loving God, and He wants you to have all of those things. What does Benny Hinn tell people? Benny Hinn, the predominant faith healing movement leader. Essentially, it tells people God's will is never that you should have any pain or suffering or or affliction or anything. It isn't his will that anybody be suffering. And so, you know what? You need to express faith. If you have enough faith, then God will certainly heal you. And by the way, I am an agent that God has sent into your life. So express faith in me and while you're at it, send me some money. Millions of people drink the Kool-Aid of Benny Hinn. Millions of people drink the Kool-Aid of the false gospel of Joel Olstein, Kenneth Copeland. Crefero Dollar. The list goes on and on and on and on, beloved. Don't drink the Kool-Aid. Don't be fooled. Be discerning. Know the truth. So that you can be able to distinguish between what is false and what is True. There is nothing in God's word that says, according to Benny Hinn, that faith unlocks or activates or accelerates God's healing of you. Show me in the Bible. Show me in the Bible. It may be God's will. In fact, it is in many cases that it's God's will that you go through suffering and that you live well under your suffering so that you draw closer to him and that you set your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith and what is to be offered to you in spiritual blessings for eternity beyond this earth. We're called to live well under our suffering according to the Word of God, right? But that's not what some of these charlatans say. They promise people healing. They enrich themselves at the expense of people. They lack character, beloved. They lack character. And it shows forth in their teaching as well in their belief system where their belief system drives their corrupt character, if you will. In case there are any doubts... Look at what Paul says in verses 12 and 13. Let me quote you a couple of your trusted experts, Cretans, right? To show the corrupt character of these false teachers in verse 12. Paul says, one of themselves, a prophet of their own said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Paul makes the point, these false teachers, they lack character. And let me show you by quoting from a well respected, highly honored Cretan teacher and prophet of the 6th century BC called Epimenides. That's where that quote comes from. Epimenides was a, a highly respected, highly honored Cretan teacher whose opinion was highly valued by these Cretan, by, by, the, by these citizens of, on the island of Crete. To quote Epimenides would have been like quoting President Lincoln or President Washington, if you wanted to make a a point to an American today, there was credibility that was there. And according to Epimenides, this Cretan prophet, his people were deceptive, brutal and base and lazy and greedy, liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons, not a very high view of his own people, right? In short, he said, my people are wicked people. We all know that. We all know that. In fact, Epimenides believed so strongly in the wickedness of his own countrymen that he said that the absence of wild beasts on the island of Crete is more than supplied by its human inhabitants. <sighs> not a very high view of your own people, right? In other words, there may not be animal beasts on the island of Crete, whatever he's they're describing he's describing there, but the islands, human beings, acted like beasts and made more made up for that. And on the heels of that Cretans' opinion paul says in verse 13 this testimony is true he says no need to debate it in fact i love paul's argumentation here because if they start arguing with this no it's not true oh now they're going against the revered epimenides right who's trusted and honored and he was seen as a present-day prophet at that time in 6 bc or so So if they start countering this, saying, no, Paul, that's not true, then they're going against epimenides. I love the argumentation of the biblical authors under the inspiration of the Spirit of God. It says, this testimony is true, verse 13, for this cause, reprove them, these false teachers, severely, so that they may be sound in the faith. The wickedness of the Cretan culture required severe action. And notice, lest we think that there's no concern for the actual person, even the false teacher, Look at what he says in, in, in verse 13. For this cause reprove them severely so that they may be sound in the faith. I love that. There is always even a redemptive purpose for the reproof of even a false teacher or someone who is being deceived. Maybe a genuine believer who is being deceived by false teaching, beloved. Because when you speak the truth of the Word of God, there's always the possibility of either salvation for someone who is, who is promoting false doctrine, or the strengthening of a person's faith and the solidifying of their, their belief system, their theological belief system. So the church, beginning with elders, is exhorted to engage those who oppose the truth. How do we do it? By refuting and removing them far from any type of influence how contrary to what we hear in our culture today right we're essentially told hey don't be a fighting fundy come on you're always picking a fight with everybody about this truth and who knows if it's even truth anyway right don't be narrow-minded don't be mean or hateful don't be dogmatic about what you believe according to the bible come on be nice tolerance is the name of the game isn't it and it's not just tolerance beloved now you're called to promote and to adopt the thinking of, our, of the various issues in our society to adopt those things and promote them and to help them push their agenda forward so it's not just tolerance anymore So anyone who speaks the truth of the Word of God is seen negatively, as unloving, as gracious. But listen to me, if you love God as a follower of Jesus, and you love His Word, and you love His people, you are going to defend the truth in the face of opposition, beloved. And you're going to do it with gentleness, and you're going to do it with grace, and you're going to do it with compassion, knowing that people have come alongside of you all of your life to call you back to the truth. Amen? Amen. And so you recognize your own susceptibility and your own vulnerability so that so that invites your gentle approach and your compassionate approach to people, especially people who are untaught or are growing in their understanding of the truth. And that takes a lot of wisdom. You said, Pastor Kempis, I should expect opposition. I should engage it. But how do I engage it? What do I do? First of all, listen to me. You need to speak up. Speak up. Some of you have been walking with the Lord for years, and you know more than you think you do. You do. And there are situations that you've confronted, even perhaps recently, where you could have spoken the truth of the Word of God in a gracious way, and you didn't. Speak up. God is not silent, says Al Mohler in his book that he wrote recently. God is not silent. And we as believers need to bring the truth of the Word of God to bear upon the very real issues of our culture today. Otherwise, people are going to think that the Word of God and the Church of Christ is completely irrelevant and doesn't have anything to say about those issues. He uses us, beloved, to speak up. To speak up. Secondly, as you speak up, don't take things personally when people oppose you. When you take things personally, then all of a sudden you become the issue and not the truth. Let the truth offend. Let the truth confront, right? Don't take things personally. Speak up. Don't take things personally. Let the truth of the word of God be what they are offended about. Thirdly, learn to ask questions about people's beliefs. I love what what my brother said earlier. Ask questions. It's like he read my notes or something ask questions you know what oftentimes people don't even know what they actually believe beloved they don't even know what they believe they're just parroting what has been passed on to them i remember my wife uh, when she and i used to go out to, uh, uh, onto the uh, community college to share the gospel with people there was one situation where she where she uh, talked to this one girl who was part of the LA church of christ and this girl as my wife began to talk to her it became very evident that this girl didn't even know what the church of christ believed it's a cult they say that you must be baptized, that ceremony of baptism, to be saved. And that is not true, right? We know that that's just an act of obedience that shows that which already has happened on the inside. She didn't even understand that they believed that. And they were pushing this on her and other legalistic things, right? A works based system. And this girl broke down and was weeping. See, we need to ask people what they believe and test it and help them think with us about what they're talking about and help them articulate with their mouths so that they can hear the inconsistencies that are coming out, right? And then we lead them to the truth. So speak up. Don't take things personally. Let the word of truth be what convicts Thirdly, ask questions. And fourthly, listen to me. Always bring the gospel to bear upon every encounter when you come and engage people with the truth. Preach the gospel. Share the gospel. Romans 1.16 says that the, that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. First Corinthians chapter 1 Corinthians eighteen says that the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The, the gospel saves people in the hands of the Spirit of God who awaken spiritually dead sinners to the beauty and the majesty of Jesus. Preach the gospel, beloved. Drop the bomb on people. Share about Jesus. Talk about a personal God, the personal God that their religion does not call them to to worship and to have a relationship with. Talk about a personal God with whom they need to be reconciled with. Because of their sin and they're offending Him and living in rebellion against Him. But God has provided His Son who came to die for sinners. That if they repent and turn from their sins and put their faith in Jesus, they can be reconciled to their Creator and He can be their Heavenly Father. Entering a beautiful love bond relationship with their Heavenly Father. Share the Gospel, beloved. Share the Gospel. So expect opposition. Engage it. Thirdly, be exposing opposition. Be exposing it. That's essentially what Paul does in verses 14 through 16. You know, when you go to the doctor, what happens? There are different diagnostic methods that they use to kind of show you what is wrong on the inside, to determine what is wrong on the inside, whether it's an MRI or an X-ray or a CT scan. That's essentially what Paul is doing in these verses here. He is giving them a diagnostic of the teaching of these false teachers and, and exposing or unmasking the false teaching. And we must do the same thing as well, beloved. And he says, notice, first of all, that their teaching was speculative, not factual. Verse 14, he says, not paying attention to Jewish myths. We don't know what these myths were exactly about, but myths here points to a fanciful man made legends or speculations, the, the rumblings of men. In first Timothy chapter one, verse four, Paul says to Timothy not to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation, rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. Paul says these guys are simply going based upon their speculations. They don't even know how to defend this. They're also humanistic notice, not only speculative in their teaching. Their teaching was humanistic, not divine. Verse 14, and commandments, he says, of men who turn away from the truth. These guys are not calling the people to obey God's word. They're calling the people to adhere to their man-made derived commandments. If you have some time today, go read the book of Mark chapter 7. Where there, the religious leaders come after Jesus' disciples, asking as the disciples are eating, Jesus, why is it that your disciples did not wash their hands? They're munching on the food, and they are not following the tradition of the elders, washing their hands, purifying themselves externally first and foremost. And you remember what Jesus says? He quotes Isaiah the prophet, and he says, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites... This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Teaching as commandments, uh, as commandments, the teachings of men. Promoting uh, man-made traditions, man-made teachings. By that time, the time of Jesus, there were some 600 plus additional do's and don'ts that these religious leaders had added to the law of Moses. Can you believe that? What a burden to lay upon the the heads of people of the people of the day. And Jesus refuted that. And he says, that's legalism. That's those are man-made, not from from God. Their teaching is also legalistic. Notice verse 15, legalistic. He says, to the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their mind and their conscience are defiled. What does he mean by all of that? Well, verse 15, you have to understand that in the light of what Paul has been doing regarding the the false teaching... Again, these false teachers were were teaching and promoting a type of purity, if you will, a type of sanctification based upon the keeping of certain ceremonial rules and, and regulations. In addition to faith in Jesus, they were saying, you need to do this and you need to do that if you want to become more and more holy. And Paul says, no, 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 no. To the pure, all things are pure. That is to those who are truly saved, whose consciences have been cleansed. To the pure, all things are pure. A believer understands this. It's not about the externals, right? Devoid of heart. It's not just about going through the outward motions and practicing religion and rituals and all of that. And your heart is corrupt and you're not dealing with the inside. And you're harboring sin in your heart. We understand that, 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 that righteousness on the outside flows from a heart righteousness, right? That is cultivated. We are submitting to the word of God from the inside and walking with integrity. But Paul says, on the other hand, to the pure, all things are pure, but verse 15, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. Again, he's talking with, in the context of these, these things that they're promoting as ways to be purified or sanctified, right? These religious rituals, he says to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their mind and their conscience are defiled. These people are focusing on the outside, on the, on the outside. They're not focusing on the inside, on their corruption on the inside. Both their mind and their conscience are defiled. They fail to understand that external purity begins in the heart, beloved. And he exposes this and tells Titus, here is the problem right here, Titus. Here is the problem. It's not about those external things, Titus. It's Titus two eleven through 14. The grace of God saves and the grace of God sanctifies and the grace of God sustains to the end when Jesus returns. It's all about grace, he says in Titus two eleven through 14. It's not about those work-based systems, Titus. Refute those things. Silence those guys. And it shows itself in their unholy conduct. Look at verse 16. They profess. They say with their lips. They profess to know God, but by their deeds, they deny him being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. They lack integrity. How they live contradicts what they say. In short, they are hypocrites like the Pharisees of Jesus's day. And Paul doesn't mince any words. He shows them their true character. He says in verse 16, they are detestable. They provoke disgust because of their hypocrisy. That's the idea and disobedient in that they speak and and live against the truth and worthless, he says, for any good deed. That's the idea of unapproved, disqualified for any good works, these individuals who don't deal with their hearts but promote this works-based, externalistic type of religion and rob Jesus of his glory and his sufficiency. That's the type of people that they are. Sounds so similar to false teachers of today, doesn't it? And have you ever noticed... When you try to expose what's going on with these individuals they are so 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 difficult to to pin down on what they believe a few years ago a guy by the name of rob bell prominent evangelical he's really not evangelical at all the guy began to basically in his books and in his lectures and his teachings essentially deny that the the existence of hell and when you began to push him on it and he got some heat for that, he came, He began to backtrack on that issue, right? When people began telling him, hey, but Jesus talked about hell, an actual literal place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth for those who reject Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And he explained away those texts. It was hard to pin the guy down. Try asking Joel Olstein to define the gospel for you. Seriously. Some of you, I know, listen to Joel Olstein. Or maybe just to be entertained. Okay? But some of you listen to Joel Osteen, you think he's such a nice guy. He's always got a great smile. Right? Listen, Joel Olstein, when asked if um, Mitt Romney was a brother in the Lord, essentially, he said, well, uh, Mitt Romney uh, believes, has faith in Jesus. And if he's got faith in Jesus, who am I to judge? Who am I to judge? He who is a, a, a prominent, supposedly evangelical pastor doesn't expose Mormonism for what it is at that moment, but essentially says that him and Mitt Romney are cool, cool guys and they're brothers in the Lord? Does he understand and is he willing to unpack and expose the fact that Mormonism denies the absolute deity of Jesus? He's just another God, a special one, a little God. But hey, you know what? Every other human being, according to the Mormon religion, is progressively moving towards becoming a God too. So that really doesn't make Jesus very special, right? He's not willing to expose that. Listen to his messages. Does he ever talk about sin? Now that he's receiving some heat over the last few years, he's beginning to talk about sin. But then he says, but you know, they are, it says, sin means missing the mark, but who am I to judge how they missed the mark? Who am I to judge? Well, the Word of God, as a preacher of the Word of God, calls you to distinguish between truth and error and call it out, Joel Osteen. Otherwise, you don't deserve to be preaching on public television like that. We have men, false teachers, who aren't exposing these things, beloved. And people's lives are being wrecked. They are upsetting whole households, teaching things they should not teach. And you and I, beloved, must not be naïve. Pay attention to the teaching of individuals. What are they writing about? What are they promoting? Are they defending it according to the word of God? Test the truth or test what they are preaching. Don't be naive. Don't believe everything that you're told. Don't believe everything that you read. Don't believe everything that you watch. Don't believe everything that you hear on radio. Don't be naive. Grow in discernment, beloved test the teaching does it match with god's holy word ask what they believe Is there a doctrinal statement connected to that individual where they articulate where they're at with regards to doctrine and theological matters? Where they they talk about the non-negotiables of the Christian faith and there are secondary matters, yes, that don't have to do with salvation, that are very important things, but they don't have to do with core doctrines. But you definitely want to know what they believe with regards to core doctrines. But there is a type of evangelicalism today of individuals who are saying this. You know what? Anybody can put on a document, a doctrinal statement, and go away from it in practice. So, who needs doctrinal statements? Who needs that? Anybody can be inconsistent. Anybody can articulate that and then just go away from it. Listen to me. Not so. If you are grounding your theology on God's Holy Word, you should be able to articulate it concisely or extensively in written document. Ask for it. Ask for it. Many of these individuals don't have that, and if they do, you'd be shocked at what they actually believe, and they hide it when they teach publicly from people because what they want is money, or sordid gain, or popularity, or whatever else you, wanna, you want. They, they want they're after. They won't talk about what they believe. Ask for it, beloved. Ask for it. Let me give you four thoughts as we conclude. Okay. Practical implications. From this text. One, be praying for your leaders. Pray for us that we might be vigilant, diligent men who are men of the word, men of the book, who defend against wolves from within and from without. And even wrong thinking in the lives of people. That we would be faithful to the word of God. Secondly, be accountable. You need to be under shepherds and in a church, a Bible believing church, who is committed to protecting the truth and protecting you. You must be committed to a local church. Yes, you're part of the universal church. If you're truly born again, yes. But you must commit to a local church so that you could be shepherded under shepherds and where you can can take ownership of the lives of your brethren and they do the same thing for you. Listen, what Satan wants is for you to live in isolation, not in community. And in that way, you are vulnerable and susceptible to falsehood and to false teaching that's going to harm you. Discipleship. Plug in. And if you're a member and you're not plugged in, stop making excuses. Stop talking about how busy you are and you have a family and you have this thing and you have that. All of us are busy, all of us have families. Amen? We can all make excuses. God doesn't want our excuses, He wants us to obey His word for His glory and for our good. He's after your growth, He's after you being conformed to the image of His Son, Jesus. He's after your spiritual health. So be accountable. Third, be growing. Be growing. You are not to be naive, easily tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, according to the craftiness of, of men, deceitful scheming, you need to grow in your knowledge of God and His Word, beloved. And as you do that, you grow in wisdom and discernment, and you're not vulnerable and susceptible to falsehood. And we have so many mechanisms here in the church for you to do that. Obviously, the main worship service, uh, fellowship groups where the Word of God is taught, and you're accountable to people. mens women, Men's and women's small groups where there's biblical content being dealt with in those particular venues. There's all kinds of mechanisms, even one-on-one discipleship that we can hook you up with so that you are growing in your knowledge of God and his word and you're not susceptible and vulnerable to falsehood, you see. Finally, for those of you who are not followers of Jesus, be saved. Turn from your sins and trust in Christ. You understand in, this, in the context of talking about falsehood in our society that there's, either, there's, there's only two ways. There's a narrow way or the broad way. And you are either on the narrow way, a believer, or you're on the broad path that leads to destruction. There's darkness and there's light. You're either walking in the light of Jesus or you're walking presently in darkness. This is how the Bible describes you in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 16, that you as an unbeliever are walking in the futility of your mind, darkened in your understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in you, because of the hardness of your heart. And you, having become callous, have given yourselves over to all kinds of sin. And it's going to express itself in different ways, maybe in self-righteous sin or explicit destructive sins. But you are walking in darkness and thus in sin and in rebellion against the Holy God. Come to the light of Jesus who came to deliver people from the lies of Satan, from the God of this world. And the greatest lie of this world to you as a non-believer is that you can actually be good enough apart from Jesus. And that is a lie from hell. It is only based upon the righteousness of Jesus Christ. His perfect life, death and resurrection. And he's coming back. He's coming back. And all of the brokenness that you see around you is going to end, you see. And for those who have put their faith in Jesus, there's eternal hope beyond this world. And there won't be any more brokenness. And we're going to be worshiping the Lord forever and ever and ruling with Him in a new heavens and a new earth. All that for those who will turn from their sins and put their faith in Jesus. Be saved. Be saved. That your soul would be protected from eternal damnation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you that you have left your church on earth to be the pillar and the support of the truth. Help us as your shepherds, under shepherds, to protect your church. Help us to be accountable as your people to protecting the truth of your word, to protecting one another with grace and love and gentleness. Lord, help us to be people who are accountable to one another. Lord, I pray that you would continue to help us to, uh, Lord, put on the lenses of your truth as we see everything around us, that we may not forget that there is a king, a king of glory who was returning someday, and all of this will end someday for those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.